Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Men, grab a seat. Get a Bible. We are in Matthew 5 to 7. Today is the end of, if you guys didn't know this or not, I put it together. We had different sermon series. But really, since last August, since last fall, we've been in one chunk of scripture. We've been in Matthew 5 to Matthew 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And we broke it up and called it different things, but we've been walking through these three chapters in Matthew. We've been walking through Jesus, talking about what it looks like to follow him. And we started with the Beatitudes back in the fall, and we said these are the family rhythms of God. And then we got into the Lord's Prayer, because it's right in the middle of that as he says, hey, this is how you pray. And then we talked about what love looks like, and then we finally landed on, but this is the life that Jesus calls us into. It's been a nine-month journey through Jesus' famous, most famous sermon. And so today, what I want to do is recap some of that, because we need to look at it from a 30,000-foot view. We need to get context. We have to talk through what it looks like of what Jesus is talking about when he talks about his, his kingdom, essentially, overall. And we're going to land in a story that you and I have probably heard. It's about two houses, one built on sand, one built on a foundation, and guess what happens? And why I want to look through this through the context of the whole thing is because as we land the plane and as we wrap up in the Beatitudes, I think it's telling us a story of who Jesus is and what we're called to be as the people of God. So before that... We're going to do what we do, and we have two goals on Sunday morning. We want to know God as we read the scriptures. We want to experience God as the Spirit works in us, and we worship. And what we mean by that, and why we keep coming back to the scriptures, and maybe for some of you, the same story you've heard taught six or seven times before today, and they probably did a better job, is because we believe that there's no end to our understanding and growing knowledge of our God. That's why we call him God and don't call ourselves God, because I can't get to the end of him. My God is bigger than me, and because of that, he's worthy of my worship. Because of that, I turn in admiration, and I worship God as I read the scriptures, and as we sing some songs together, and as we today take communion. And so our prayers today is that we might know God, and we might experience God as the Spirit works in and through us. And what that means for you is that we just don't sit here passively and listen and jot down some notes and laugh when I tell you to laugh. We actually engage with the scriptures Understanding that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God himself, is forming your soul to look more like Jesus. That's beautiful, and that's powerful, and that should never be taken for granted. So we're going to spend a couple minutes in prayer before we dive in, and I'm going to ask that you pray for you, that the Spirit might do something today, because we know that God is good and faithful. And two, I'm going to ask that you pray for me, uh, that I do a good job at my job. So let's pray. God, I'm so incredibly thankful the privilege of being able to be here. To gather with friends and family and people we love and talk about Jesus who binds us all together. I'm so thankful that as we read your scriptures, you care enough about us to change us, to form our spirit and fashion our spirit into the likeness of the person that we follow. If you're comfortable, take a couple seconds and just to yourself silently say a prayer that the spirit of God might do some work in your soul this morning. And I'd ask that you pray for me, that the words I say might be edifying and uplifting and encouraging, that they might paint the right picture of the character of God as we look more like Jesus together.
pray all these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. We're in it together. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We're going to land at the end in Matthew 7, starting verse 24. But before we get there, let's look at how we got here. Jesus was walking around. He'd lived 30 years at this point, and he'd just been a carpenter. And like any good millennial, he'd lived with his parents still, right? And he's living with his parents, and he's talking with his parents. And then he said, the time is now. The time is now. Why I came is beginning. And he says, I'm going to start my ministry. And so there's a baptism event. And then Jesus starts walking and talking in a way that people followed. And so in chapter 4, beginning into the Sermon of the Mount, before he starts into what he's saying, he says in Matthew, we read in verse 23, Jesus went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And so when we come to this text, it's with an understanding of what he's talking about. Jesus is talking about his kingdom that he came to kick off. He's talking about his kingdom that he came to initiate that one day will be inaugurated in full when he comes back. And when we say kingdom, we literally mean reign and rule or influence. Because here's the deal. You and I belong to different kingdoms. You do, I guarantee it. You might not want to admit it or notice it, but you do. When you're at work, you live by your workers' rules. You're under their kingdom. When you're at home, you live by your father or your mother's rules. You're in their kingdom. It's whatever the dominant influence is on your life to bring about the decisions you make. Jesus says, I come with a kingdom. I come with an authority. I come wanting to reign and rule over all your life. I want to be the authority in your life to set your actions. And so when he talks about kingdom in this text, what he talks about in the entire section of the Sermon on the Mount is his kingdom. What it's going to look like, what it can look like if we live into it now, in the here and now. And we kicked this series off on Easter and said that the resurrection of Jesus wasn't just a promise for our future, but a present reality for our today if we press into the ways and rhythms of God. And so our look at the Sermon on the Mount started with the Beatitudes. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are the poor in spirit that we might know that we need God. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. And, and when, he ta- when he talked about these things, they were absolutely juxtaposed to the way the Roman world worked. And we talked through that in the fall. The Roman world operated on the currency of power. And Jesus says, I don't operate on the currency of power, but service. And as he walked through the rhythms of his family that he calls the Beatitudes, this is what my family looks like. These are the characteristics that motivate us. We saw one common theme as God's people in God's kingdom. We repurpose our power and our possessions for the purposes of others. He's resetting what this world might look like. Once a year, for the past, I think, five years, I take this swimming trip with a friend of mine. And I know it sounds like you take a swimming trip. We go to, um, we go to really any cold water spot we can find in Texas to escape from the heat in June and July. It's usually three days, and we just go to different springs and different pools, and there's a lot of hiking, and last year was fantastic. Last year was the first year we, we rented a canoe, went down to a river near Austin, and we canoed like 25 miles, and we camped in the middle of that on this island in the middle of this river. I felt like Bear grills. everybody. It was amazing. Except the only difference was I had sous vide some food the night before and brought it with us, all right? If you don't know what that is, there's a class on July 14th. Um, But we go on this trip, and I remember the first year, I hadn't done a whole lot of hiking in rivers before. And I remember he had, he grew up in this area, and then he lived in Tennessee for a while, in Kentucky, and he, he loved doing that kind of stuff. So he had all this equipment and all this gear. He had the right shoes, and I was wearing like Nikes that didn't have shoelaces, you know? And I'm tripping and falling and stumbling everywhere in this river as we're walking. And, 
and I had these sunglasses on. I, I'm a cheap sunglass wearer, okay? I, I break them often. I throw them often. I scratch them all the time. I buy them from convenience stores for 10 bucks a pop because they're easily replaced. So I'm walking in this river, and I can't see anything because it's just darkness, you know? And he had an expensive pair of polarized sunglasses. I go, people buy those and spend money on those things, and that's beautiful. And until that moment, I didn't realize the difference. And so I couldn't see the rocks in the water. And they said, put these on. I put on a polarized pair of sunglasses, and you can see right through the water. It was amazing. I had no idea that actually could happen. And I started actually walking like I wasn't a toddler in the water for the first time. And here's the point. When Jesus is talking about his kingdom, I think he's asking us to put on his glasses and say, look at the world that we can create together if we live how we were designed to live. And so he talks about his ways and his rhythms. He talks about his beatitudes, and fundamentally, he's trying to call us into creating a culture in the middle of this one that points to his redemptive work. And so throughout the beatitudes, and then throughout the section outside of that, where he he talks about the rhythms of his people, he resets their idea of what it looks like to live in their world. So one of the biggest ideals in the Hebrew world was this kind of how you love one another, and they got it from their Old Testament law, and Jesus visits that text, right, in chapter 6, and he says, in a different way, I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be like your Father in heaven. Until then, the law of love in the land was governed by justice, ruled by justice. You've heard the phrase most likely in the Old Testament, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If someone kills your ox, you kill their ox, you shake hands, you go back to your quarters, right? The, the ruling, governing law of love was justice. Jesus comes in and says, I'm going to change that. I'm going to give you a deeper understanding of what love is that goes well beyond your understanding of the law. You're no longer going to be governed by justice. You're governed by love and service. So he uses examples like if somebody slaps you in the face, turn your cheek. He used examples by saying, hey, you know this government that's oppressing you? There was a law that said you had to carry their stuff for a mile, even if it meant not the direction you were going and it was an inconvenient time. He said, carry it two miles. And so no longer is your governing law of love justice. Your governing law of love is, the rule of law that governs love is not justice, but, but it's grace. And so what, he, what he means when he says that, and this is what I love, is he's telling us that God isn't a fair God. I think it's really important. Because I think we strive for fairness in our world, but here's why it's good that God's not fair. God's not fair because God is gracious. And those two things can't coexist. Because by definition, if something is gracious, you're not getting what you deserve. You're not getting what's fair. God's not fair, and that's why I'm here. God's not fair. That's why I was born in this part of the country when most other people don't have the luxuries I have. God's not fair, and I am grateful for his grace. So he says, yeah, it's not fair that somebody slaps you and you're going to let them do it again. It's not fair that they're oppressing you and you're going to take their stuff two miles, but that's a reflection of how I love you. He's redefining what love is. He redefines what religion is. He redefines how they gather together and what they do to show their affection for God in terms of fasting, in terms of giving, in terms of praying. He redefines what the world looks like and the relationship between God and people and people and people. And this is the Sermon on the Mount because he's painting a picture of his kingdom. And he's saying, see it like I see it from my view, from my glasses. And then we get into what we've done the last couple weeks in chapter 7. So he says, here is my kingdom, but watch out because people are going to try to come in and tell you things that it's not, you know? It's like when your sunglasses get really dirty. They're going to come in and they're going to try to smear and smudge what I say is good. And so a couple weeks ago, we talked about what it looked like to watch out for false prophets. That was last week. 
sheep and wolves. Because people are going to come in and try to tell us that Jesus stands for things he doesn't and God values things he doesn't. And we need to be right judges of what God's good is. And essentially what he says, he says it in verse 15 of chapter 7, watch out for false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are voracious wolves. What we said last week was that all of us, all of us, every single one of us are called to be theologians. And that's not a scary word, that's a good one. That just means that you are called, you are called to know God, to know about God, to study his scripture, not to take my word for it, even though that'd be easier on me, but to look at the scripture that paints the character of who God is and says, this is what I find when I read the scripture about the character of God. You are called to know what it says, stand up for what it says, because people are going to try and change it. And so he's calling us to be theologians. And all that means when we say the word theologians is that we are called to know God. But here's the deal. And here's where today is. I think the idea of knowing is deeper than just being able to understand the words in the book that we're reading from. I think knowing is deeper than just intellectual assent. And sometimes I feel like our culture does a really good job of saying we know things when we get A's on tests. But I think what God calls us into and what the story's about today is about knowing God on a deeper level than just answering the questions about it. But our culture values the Jeopardy answers to life, right? I mean, I grew up with phrases like this, you know, knowledge is power. Sure, if you use it, <laughs> you know. Uh, the more you know, that little jingle that everybody's singing in their head right now, you know. Great, absolutely. But here's the problem is that that's just one side of knowledge. And I think that slipped into, does slip into how we do church. I grew up, the first church I remember was actually, I grew up in this area, was First United Methodist in Louisville. And they did this big VBS like churches do and did. And I remember I loved VBS, but not because I wanted to hear stories about Jesus and, and not because of the games you play and not because I was hanging with my friends. I'm a twin, so that means I'm born competitive. I love VBS because the whole thing was a competition. And at the end of their VBS, you got points for saying Bible verses and saying the books of the Bible in order. You actually got points for giving, like how much you gave, right? I would empty my savings and my mom would say, hey, don't give all of it. And I'd be like, but I'm gonna win, you know? And at the end of it, they literally gave. I had it until a few years ago. I think my mom tossed it. They literally gave an MVP trophy to the winning boy and the winning girl. It was huge too, you know? I was like, yes, God is good and he loves me and I'm the best Christian of all the other kids here, you know? Just want you to know where your pastor came from. I've always won in the Jesus game, all right? I'm not just, that's correlation, not causation. Know that, right? So there's this idea that we value, we value the intellectual ascent of God. And I'm not saying that's bad. That's really, really good. That's what last week was about. Know about the character of God, but if we just know about the character of God and we miss out on the other side of what knowing is about, then we don't fully know God. So for example, our culture has one word for knowing. In, in other cultures, there's different words that flesh out the nuance of that concept. So in German, there's two words for knowing. You can know something intellectually and you can know something relationally. In French, there's two words, an intellectual knowledge and, and, a, and a relational knowledge. In Spanish, there's two words for knowing, an intellectual knowledge and a relational knowledge. And when we follow Jesus, when we get to know God, I think what we have to understand is that knowing God fully means knowing God both intellectually and experientially. We need both. But sometimes we flatten down our understanding of knowledge into Bible trivia. J.I. Packer wrote a book called Knowing God. It's a good thing that I'm going to quote it today. He says, To be preoccupied with getting theological knowledge as an end in itself, 
To approach Bible study with no higher motive than a desire to know all the answers is the direct route to the state of self-satisfied self-deception. We feel like we know more or are better than we are. And so Jesus tells a story about two people, two perspectives, two lives, two houses, two foundations. And he says, there's two ways to know me. There's two ways to know me. And he starts in verse 24. Everyone who hears the words of mine and does them is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the flood came, and the winds beat against that house. But it did not collapse because its foundation had been laid on rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the flood came, and the winds beat against the house, and it collapsed. It was utterly destroyed. Last year on this swim trip that I go on, there was one park we went to. I'm blanking on the name of it, but it was a floodplain. It was dry as a bone, and we hiked all up it. But they had two pictures when you went into the park, and one was what it normally looks like, and one is what it looks like they had flash flood sirens, what it looks like 10 minutes after the flash flood sirens go off. It was unrecognizable. There were tens and 20 feet of water that come rushing in in about 15 minutes. And they told us when we got there, if you hear it, this is no mess around, no play around sprint out of the canyon, right? In the Palestinian first century world, when they lived in the desert, they had flash floods. It's not like you slowly watch the water rise. It is in minutes, it can wipe out all that you own. It was life or death, and they understood that. So when Jesus talks about flash flooding, they didn't think it was just a buildup of water with Lake Louisville when it gets higher and higher and higher. They understood the weight of what he's talking about. And so as he's talking about this, he says in verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And I think here's part of the tension in our text today, at least for me, because we're a grace-based church. And that means that we believe, rightfully so, that you did nothing to earn your salvation. God didn't say you're the prettiest, the brightest, the best at Bible jeopardy. I'm going to get you into heaven You did nothing to earn God's merit or God's favor. It's solely based on the works of Jesus. And the more good things you do don't increase how much God loves you. That's what grace is. The problem is that sometimes we divorce grace from works. And we believe that then if we talk about works at all, we're taking away from God's grace. And I think that does a disservice to both. So when he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, we have to understand what that word means. And that word in the Greek is seen in different English translations of the word, depending on the context. And just in Matthew 5 to Matthew 7 alone, we see that word to do, to make, to produce, or to practice is what it means when it says, does them there. We see it 22 times in those five in those three chapters. When Jesus is describing his kingdom 22 times. He talks about action items behind just accepting the grace that he gives. We see it in a couple different places. Let me read it to you. Matthew 5, 19, after the Beatitudes, so anyone who breaks one of the latest, the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys, there's our word, them and teaches others to do so will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 6, verse 1, be careful not to display, that's the same word we see for do in our context in in the, the parable of the builders, be careful not to display your righteousness merely to be seen by men. Matthew 7, 12, the climax of kind of how we love other people, he says, in everything, treat, that's our word to do, others as you would want them to treat you, for this fulfills the law and the prophets. 22 times in three chapters when Jesus is describing how his kingdom impacts, effects, is created in the middle of our world. Here's the point. You, you cannot divorce doing from discipleship. You can't. 
I I don't think there's any way to divorce doing from discipleship because this whole passage is about a oneness of character, a oneness of motive that always leads to action, a oneness that understands the grace of God leads towards discipline or doing because that's the kingdom of God in the first place. I think it's really hard is sometimes we try and divorce those two things. And I don't think they were ever supposed to be juxtaposed. I think when they're together, it's defining what God wants his kingdom to be all about. People that know and then act on it. So we have passages in James. This is about 50 years later. He writes and says, be sure you live out the message and do not merely listen to it so you don't deceive yourselves. (laughs) That word deceive yourselves is fun because we can answer Jesus trivia and we feel like we know God fully. That's just not true. It's just not true. I, before the kiddo, read all the books, right? Read all the books on how to get your kid to sleep. Read all the books on how you're going to be a little tired this last week. There's something called a nine-month sleep regression. I'm pretty sure people just make this up, but um, it's true in terms of she's not sleeping anymore. She has this fun trick now where she'll cry all through the night, and, and there's just, I guess I'm reading about it, and they're telling me it's a separation anxiety moment, and, you know, we're getting people telling us to let her cry it out, but she takes a little head, and she throws her head into the crib really hard, and then she looks at the door like, you guys coming. I'm hurting myself, right? She's her mother's child. Anyway, I think, um, kidding, kidding. Um, so it's been a really tough week, and it's been a sleepless week, and there are nights I stayed up till 3.30 and 4.30 and 5 with this kid who just keeps crying. My point is simply this. I read all the books on what it was going to be like to be tired and be a parent, but it's really easy to read books on tiredness when you're well-rested. <laughs> it doesn't paint a full picture of what it's like to know what parenting is like. And so in James, he says, you're going to deceive yourself if you just know God intellectually and don't do anything about it because part of knowing God is experiencing God. And Jesus wants us to know him fully. So this is works and grace that come together. We are only saved by grace. We do not merit anything before God when we do more stuff. But if we fully understand God's grace towards us, it motivates us towards action. There's a, a Christian writer in said this, if we reduce knowing God in a deep relational sense to knowing things about God, then we're going to find ourselves producing disciples that look like demons who have perfect knowledge of God but refuse to treasure him. I think here's where we get wrong. We think that works are always divorced from grace, and they're not. So let me give you an example. I don't know if you guys have followed the growth of Flower Mound over the last decade. I have a little bit because I live here because I grew up here. And the Double Oak, Flower Mound, Argyle area It is a fantastic place to raise kids. I mean, it really is. You have amazing schools. You have grocery stores everywhere. You have low crime rates. Two months ago, a month ago, I read an article that Flyermount was the safest town in all of Texas, right? It's pretty incredible. We have some of the best high schools in the state of Texas. If you go to Argyle, you talk about it all the time nonstop because they win everything, it seems like, you know? Here's the deal. Is to... To put grace in a box and say grace is only our salvation and not our means of sustaining the life that we find in Jesus is like us saying that the grace that our parents showed us or my parents showed me was simply moving here in the first place and not the everyday graces I got from growing up here, from having access to good schools and cars, from having access to good food, from having access to the affluence that comes with living in the Flower Mound area. My point is, I think the grace of God is just as present in the everyday sustaining kingdom work as we do the day-to-day tasks of living out the kingdom of God as it is when we're called in the first place. One author says, one theologian says, the Christian faith entails both indicative and imperative, both grace and virtue, both divine gift and human habitation. 
And these are comparable, not opposites. He says disciples of Jesus are not just called to imitate, but are enabled to do so through God's initiating and sustaining work. The enablement comes through being in the presence of Jesus. A full picture of grace doesn't stop at salvation. It continues through sanctification. Understanding that the way that I live into the rhythm of Christ is only fueled and motivated by the grace of God that he gives me through the power of his spirit. So we can't divorce grace and action. They actually go together really well because Jesus says, I'm building a kingdom and you're going to live out my values and when you grasp onto my grace and live out my values, guess what happens? You and everyone around you experience me and then they fully know me. They see what it's like. They see what it could be. They see what the world was designed for. One Christian writer says, grace is the central invitation to life and the final word. It's the beckoning nudge and the overwhelming undeserved mercy that urges us to change and and grow and then gives us the power to pull it off. What Jesus is talking about and why we did the context thing is he's talking about a whole life singularly lived through it in the rhythms of God to bring about his kingdom, his influence, his family here on earth. Made possible because Jesus rose from the grave. And he's saying in that you need grace. At all aspects of it, those two things aren't opposed. They coalesce. So I want to be a person who knows that when I work out my salvation, I'm not proving anything. I'm living into something I'm called into in the first place. And I need just as much of God's grace. In Galatians 3, there's a story about the church there. Paul walks in because Peter had got some stuff wrong. And he starts yelling at the people pretty much. If you read it with the same intensity I do, but then I'm yelling a lot. So um, he starts reading it and he, he looks at his people in the beginning of chapter 3 that are going back to works-based religion to earn the merit of God. And he says, hey, how are you saved? By the Spirit? Okay, if you're saved by the Spirit, why do you live through the works now? He says, if you were saved by the Spirit, then you live every day through that same Spirit, the grace of God. So there's this beautiful picture when he, when he talks about a man, when he talks about a man who built a foundation because he listened and actually put into play the rhythms and the values of Jesus as he's talking about what his kingdom might look like, as he's talking about that man, he says, this is what a full life is, a person who not only knows me, but experiences my goodness and knows me fully. So he says that man, if you look at verse 25, is wise. The rain fell, the flood came, and the winds beat against that house, but it did not collapse because the foundation had been laid on rock. And so he calls the person who acts on the values, the rhythms, the ways of Jesus, he calls that person wise, literally not foolish. And he's going to juxtapose that with, guess what? The foolish person, right? Verse 26, everyone who hears the words of mine but does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And when the wind and the rains came, guess what happens? Everything got wiped out. And I think the interesting thing here is between those two words for wise and foolish. So let me use a baseball analogy because I haven't hit sports yet today, and that's in my checkbox every Sunday. So in sports, in baseball, um, you go, you have an at-bat. That's the guy that walks up to the plate. And if you don't know anything about it, I'm going to break it down really bare bones. You try and hit the ball where the other people aren't. And there's a, there's a strike zone. And if the pitcher throws the ball out of the strike zone four times, you get what's called a walk, right? So let's talk about like this, Barry Bonds. Barry Bonds is a player that is immensely talented, took a lot of drugs to get talented, but whatever floats his boat, right? And so he, a couple years ago, was, this is 2001 and 2002 and 2004, incredibly dominant. 
I've never seen a baseball hitter be this dominant. Literally, the man had, I wrote down some numbers, he had like 476 at-bats, and in 2001, he was walked 178 times. This is in a game where if you succeed three out of ten times, you're one of the best that's ever played, okay? In 2004, it was his height. He had 373 at-bats. He walked 200 of those times. Mostly, he was walking anywhere between one and two times out of every three times he went to the plate. That is unheard of, and he knew it because he was the best hitter in the game, And because he was hitting the ball out of the park when he did hit the ball, he'd walk up there and he knew this pitcher wasn't going to pitch me anything I could actually hit. So I'm just going to sit here and wait. I'm going to wait on my one pitch. There's one pitch that's going to look good. I'm going to have patience and I'm going to wait on it. I know what that is. And when that happens, I'm going to act because I've been coached to do that. Okay. The Rangers have a second baseman called Rugnet Odor. All right. And um, last year, statistically, I'm not trying to knock the guy. I'm really not. He's so much more talented than me. He had one of the worst years statistically in the history of baseball. That's hard to do, everybody. And I was watching the Rangers on Saturday, and I saw him coming to bat, and I knew it was going to happen. Everybody knew it was going to happen. The announcer commented on what was going to happen. This guy goes in, in, in slumps where he doesn't hit the ball. There's something called a slider, which it just breaks out and away from you. And a good slider never finishes in the strike zone, not even close. It looks good for a second, but... It breaks so hard and out of the zone that you couldn't hit it if you had a two by four, okay? And I watched him up there, and they pitched him four sliders in a row. This man knew going up to the plate, this is what the pitcher was going to do. The pitcher basically told him, I'm going to throw you four sliders, don't swing. He swung every time, right? Even though he knew it wasn't good for him. He is what we call foolish in our text. The word literally in the Greek is moros. It's where we get the word in 1910 moron from when a German psychologist said, I need a word to describe somebody that makes bad decisions when they go against what they know to be true. And it doesn't mean he's stupid all the times. It means in this one situation, he's living against the ideals he says that he espouses are good. He's not living in a way that reflects our values as a team and what good batting values are. He knows it, but he doesn't live it. And when that happens, we fail. So I, I won my MVP award for Jesus, and I won the trophy. And part of the winning was whatever team had the most points um, at the end of this VBS week got like this map. I mean, I was a small kid, but it was, it, in my head, it seems like it was the size of the first row here, right? Which is really just west. But it seemed like it was huge, like feet and feet and feet long. It was a banana split Sunday, and I was so excited. And so because of my valiant, heroic efforts in the VBS, we won as the boys, right? I was so excited. And then they come up to me, and they say, hey, guys, how would you feel if we split this prize with the girls? And I said, no. I said, why, why would we do that? We won. And they said, yeah, but they would really like some and it'd be good to share. I said, but then aren't we saying losing's okay? Maybe, maybe we're sending a bad message. I'm not a parent yet. I was 30 years away, but I had it instilled in me, everybody. And uh, long story short, I still remember this because I'm still bitter. They, they split it with the girls. I don't think I had anything. I think I just walked out, right? <laughs> I'm not necessarily proud of that, but I'll tell you this. I knew all the answers about how Jesus was loving, how compassionate he was, how kind he was, how he wasn't fair. And I couldn't share a couple scoops of ice cream with people that said, can I have some? There's a difference between knowing and knowing. There's a difference between the culture we create if we just know the answers and don't know and live out the ways and rhythms of God. And Jesus says, here's what you do with all this I just told you. You can listen and not do anything about it, but then you stop creating the world that I'm trying to kickstart here. You're not being people influenced by me. And because of that, people won't know me fully. They can know about me. And that's a travesty. And then he ends it by saying, so when the rains come, those people... 
don't last. And, and reigns in the Old and New Testament stand for two different things, especially in this text. There's a here and now, and then there's a one day. So the here and now is reign stood for trials, hard days. And they also stood for one day, final judgment kind of stuff. So he's saying when those reigns come, if your rhythms and values aren't based on what I've designed them to be based on in me, if you don't find fulfillment and joy in me and not your power and not your authority and not your self-servingness, if you find rhythms and values in those things, when those crumble, which they will crumble, when things are tested, when you lose your job, when people don't like you anymore, when your marriage isn't going well, when you get older and you're not as pretty, when those things happen, you'll crumble just like the thing that you value because it won't be based on anything that lasts. There was a, I follow Tim Keller a lot and I remember He's a pastor in, in New York. He's telling a story about why he loved his wife. They've been married for 30, 40, 50 years. I don't know. Um, long time. And, and he said, hey, I love my wife more after, we'll call it 40 years of marriage, than I did on the first day we got married. And I know enough to know that's what you're supposed to say after 40 years of marriage. Okay, that's the answer. But, but he like believed it, you know. And then he went on and he said, look, I'm going to be honest. We're not as pretty as we used to be. He said, she is. Good answer. I'm not, Right. He said, I have wrinkles and I don't have hair and, 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 you know, my hair is migrated like to my back and not my head and all that stuff that happens when you get older. And he said, but here's where I think my wife's more beautiful is because every wrinkle stands for something we went through together. Every dot and every freckle, every scar that we have on our bodies, even though they're not as pretty, stand for an experience that we grew through together as parents and as husband and wife. And what you see is that when we fully know God, as we experience God and also know about God, it leads to a deepening, stronger relationship. And if we don't live out the ways and rhythms of God's kingdom, if we don't attach works with our life in Jesus, if we don't show people what it's like, then they won't fully know God and neither will we. So this whole parable is one that Jesus says, I'm here to create a counter culture in the world that we're living in. And your job is to show it to other people that it can actually exist. John Stott says, only when the Christian community lives by Christ's manifesto will the world be attracted and God be glorified. So when Jesus calls us to himself, it's to this that he calls us, for he is the Lord of the counterculture. So Jesus reinterprets their relationship to God and to each other. He reinterprets what they thought religion was. He paints a picture they couldn't see on their own about the kingdom of God. And then when he's done, verse 28 and 29, He says, he finished saying these things and the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught them like one who had authority, not like they're experts in the law. We see two things at the end, I think. One, it talks about the fundamental teaching of Jesus. And and when you back up again and look at this text from 30,000 feet, what you see is essentially what Jesus is calling us to do is to live into God's good design for our world because it's how Jesus lived when he was here. He said there's a better currency of good than power at service. There's a better currency of good than justice. It's love. There's a better currency of how to live in the world. And I designed you for it. Live into these things. That's the whole Beatitudes. Blessed are these things. Happy are these things because this is how I designed the world to function and you will good days bad days be greater live a deeper richer fuller life if you live into these things so he calls us to throughout this entire section i had a a dog that my parents when my brother and i left for college my my parents bought my little brother a dog to replace us and that worked and um it was a lab (laughs) And I don't know if you know anything about labs. I've only had one, but this dog was made to retrieve things, you know? 
It was made to be a hunting dog. We actually sent off to hunting school. I've never seen the dog happier than the once a year that I took the dog hunting in South Dakota. I mean, she would get, she would get excited on the drive up there, and then she would see literally like a shotgun being taken out because we hunted pheasants. She would see a shotgun and just start going crazy. And in the meantime, when I'd come back home for the summers, I would take her out to the backyard, and I'd take my pitching wedge and a golf ball, and I would just pitch golf balls to like a, a pin I set up, and the dog would go and get it and bring it back. She would just wait and get it and bring it back. And she had more fun doing that. One time, I was out there probably 30 minutes. It's 105 degrees outside. And the dog's running back and forth, back and forth, so incredibly happy. And we got done, and she sat inside for 45 minutes and didn't move. I thought I killed the dog, Um, really. I I did. I was terrified. I was like, should we call a vet? And we started talking to people who knew labs. They said, Charlie, what is wrong with you? I said, the dog's going to tell me when she's tired, (laughs) you know? And he said, no, they won't. They love doing this, and they'll do it till they die. It's when she was the most happy. It's when she's the most happy is when she lived in to how she was designed to live in the first place. And so the Beatitudes are a reminder of how we were designed. These teachings that he's talking about is a reminder of how we were designed as a community of God to create the community of God in the spaces that we occupy. Jonathan Edwards says it like this, the creature is no further happy with his happiness, which God makes his ultimate end. Then he becomes one with God. The more happiness, the greater the union. When the happiness is perfect, the union is perfect. He's saying we are at our greatest good, the greatest life, when we are most unified with the God who created us. So at the end of this thing, after all this teaching, people stand there and they're amazed at what Jesus taught. But more than that, if you read the text, it says he said these things and the crowds were amazed by his teaching because he taught with one who had authority, not like the experts in the law. And I love how this thing ends. Because Jesus was up there for a couple hours teaching and he redefined life as they knew it and he redefined all the different aspects of their life. And he gets done and they say, you're different than us. And they could see it. In the rabbinic culture, you always gave reference to who you learned from. So you'd say, I think this way about this text because I got this from Rabbi such and such or so and so. I get up here and I get all my ideas outside of the jokes from the Bible, okay? I get up here and I tell you the principles and stories that God laid out for us in the scriptures. Jesus got up in front of people and didn't cite any secondary sources. He said, I'm your primary source. Listen. And they were blown away by it. They were blown away by how he spoke, about the life he spoke about, and they were drawn to it. Because right after this, in chapter 8, it starts with, and the crowds followed him down the mountain as he got done. I think what I love about this text, and and just to be 30,000 foot again and to summarize it, I think greater lives tell the story of Jesus as we invite others to know him. So you want to know what a greater life is? (laughs) I think ultimately it's when we live in a way designed with our purpose that shows people the redemptive work, the loving work, the gracious work of Christ. And then invites others to know Jesus, not just intellectually, but experience that as we live out his kingdom in our world. That's what we're called to do. That's what the whole text is about. How do we live out Jesus in our world? How do we ask ourselves the question, if people watch my marriage, and if people watch me parent, and if people watch me at my job, and if, 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 will people see Jesus? They see his kingdom, his ways, his rhythms, his love, his kindness. Well, they see the world that he's trying to create right in the middle of this one. Because that's what it looks like to live the greater life, to live into the life that we're designed for. And that's our, not responsibility, because that sounds drab, that's our charge as followers of Jesus if we believe that his good is the best good, you know? It's a joy and it's an honor and it's a beautiful thing to do, not something we have to do. So in the first century world, they reminded themselves of this culture. And one of the ways they did it was by taking communion. 
They'd get together and they would say what Jesus said. Let's eat this bread. This is body broken for him. Let's drink this wine. This is blood. Actually, in the first century world, uh, there's writings that talk about how people thought Christians were cannibals because of how they took communion. Because they'd get together and say, we're going to eat the bread and drink the blood. And they'd be like, what is wrong with you guys? Right? I get it. It's why I still get a little creeped out when we sing there's power in the blood. I know what it means and I like it. But a little part of me is like, okay, it sounds weird, you know? And what I mean by that is simply we do these things to remind us not just of the sacrifice Jesus made, but the life he called us into right here, right now. As we take communion in just a couple minutes, we're reminded that our job is not just to let people know the facts about Jesus, but to have people experience his grace too in all aspects of our life. And when we do that, when trials comes and when rain comes, we have something to fall back on that's bigger and better than simply us. When the culture crumbles around us, we won't either. So we're going to take communion, and it's gluten-free everywhere. And as we do it, let's remember who Jesus was and ask the simple question, does our life reflect his message and invite other people into it? Because he's creating something right here, right now, and it's our job to live that out. Let's pray. God, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that your kingdom asks us to act. I'm thankful that as we live out the rhythms and ways of your kingdom, only through your grace that called us, that when we do that, people get to know you in a way they wouldn't know if they just knew about you. They experience the beauty and the love of a God who loves and pursues them. As we take communion, might we be reminded about how you loved us well? And might it encourage us to live out your kingdom here and now, and inviting others in to the story of Jesus unfolding all around us. We pray these things in his name. Amen.